Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that today we are going to learn quite a bit because we have someone that has been around the block many, 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 many times. So I guess without further ado, I want to welcome serial entrepreneur Jill Elbaz. How is it going, Jill? Welcome on board here. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to, to chatting. So let's let's do a little bit of uh, walk through memory lane. So uh, you got your, um, I mean, you you basically have the engineering background, and you went to uh, your education is from Caltech, is that right? Uh, that's right, Caltech, Bachelor's of Engineering and Applied Science. Got it. And then right away you go into IBM. So tell us what what made you go into IBM in 1991. Well, let's see. In, in 1991, frankly, the economy in Los Angeles was was quite poor. Uh, in tech, it was dominated by, by the defense industry. Uh, these companies were, were laying off. Uh, all my friends were going to Silicon Valley. That's where the job seemed to be. So I jumped on that train, not really knowing very much about, about the, the world of industry. Uh, but I got a, an offer at IBM in South San Jose. Uh, I, it was going to give me an opportunity to do database development work. I was very interested in that. And, uh, and, and so that started my journey up north. Got it. And, and I saw that, that you did a couple of um, stints before going at it uh, on your own. So you went to, um, you were an engineer, then, then you went and became a database engineer at Micro Unity and then Silicon Graphics. So can you walk us through these three different roles that, that you did before you started the Applied Semantics? Because one thing that I found is that you were for one year in each one of those companies. So, so why was this the case and what did you learn from, from these three companies? Uh, let's see. I think I was at IBM two years. I seemed to be spending most of my time working on mainframes. And it turned out that, well, we, we learned in the 90s that mainframes were not going to be the future of computing. Uh, Unix was becoming very important. Uh, Sun Microsystems was the, the, a very fast-growing computer company. Uh, and then uh, PCs were also becoming a relevant technology uh, for not, not, just, not just for the consumer, for the front end, but for server-side as well, for back-end computing. Uh, 
moving to Sybase in 1993, I believe it was, uh, gave me an opportunity to develop uh, Unix and PC skills and also to work on, at the time, what was a, a really hot relational database. So I, I jumped at the opportunity and that, that took me farther north in the Bay Area to, uh, to Emeryville. Got it. And what a, what a time, you know, a, a time where you needed a moving company to, to transport your computer rather than, you know, how easy it is to carry your computer around today, no? <laughs> that, that's right. Th those days. Yes. <laughs> those days. So, so, so the last uh, stop was uh, Silicon Graphics before you became an entrepreneur. And, and you did that for a year as well there in, in Mountain View from 96 to 97. So yeah. how did you Jill, how did you get the entrepreneurial bug? What what happened? Because, I mean, here you have this path from being an engineer, having the comfortable paycheck uh, coming every month. So why did you decide to complicate your life? Well, even after Sybase and before Silicon Graphics, I did have a year and a half at this really interesting startup called MicroUnity that very few people, even in Silicon Valley, know about. Uh, they, they had the, this widely ambitious plan to revolutionize computing. They were going to displace Intel. They were going to displace Microsoft with a radically new computing architecture. And it gave me a little taste into uh, ambition at a really broad scale. The, uh, the, the, the CEO was, was revered as a visionary. And so they, they bit off a little bit more than I can chew, which, by the way, is one really important lesson as an entrepreneur is uh, ambition, yes, but but take stepping stones, achievable stepping stones on the way to the grand vision. So one incredibly incredible learning there. But my affinity for entrepreneurship, I think, goes way, way before even that, that experience, back to my childhood, where I, I, was, just, uh, I was just really interested in, in economics. And it was kind of a game. I, I, baseball cards, maybe, is one an example of something that, that got me started and buying and selling and trading and predicting which 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 players are going to improve an increase in value it was it was fun really cool really cool and so i guess that was kind of like the um your first i would say exposure to the hyper growth um startup mode and and building and and scaling so so kind of like walk us through what was the incubation process of 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 the idea behind applied semantics the let's see if I go my interest in creating a company like Applied Semantics started uh, started in my childhood with a deep fascination and love of data. I was the kid that was constantly bugging my parents to take me to the to the library so I could just spend time in the reference section. We didn't have our own encyclopedia at home. If I wanted to comb through an encyclopedia, I'd have to uh, get to, get a ride to a, a library. Um, I also love the reference section of bookstores. Probably another another important moment is uh, is getting to experience streaming data on cable TV. Uh, with cable TV, all of a sudden you had channels that were streaming financial news and, and weather data. I didn't realize at the time that my fascination with charting and storing data would lead to an interest in computers. But that's how it worked out. When I finally got a computer, I realized this is a much better tool than pen and paper to, to store and chart and, and graph and make predictions. 
And, uh, and to me, that data felt like power. It felt like I had control of, of my, my universe, maybe the universe. Got it, got it, got it. And makes sense. So, so what was the, um, what was the um, kind of like the process of, of, of really saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to take a look at, the, at this company and, and what was the founding team that really brought it to life? Yeah. So getting closer to that, that founding story at Applied Semantics, uh, toward the end of 93 or maybe it was early 94, uh, the Mosaic browser had just come out on, uh, and, and I, I had this exposure to uh, the web. Mosaic browser was the first web browser before Netscape Navigator. Yeah. So it's, it's a whole 25 years ago. And, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, and, I, and I saw just a little inkling of how the world might be very, very different, where people around the world could connect and collaborate, could understand and share information. And I had a sense that the world was going to be remade based on this kind of sharing and connectivity. I got extremely excited about that. So after I after I saw that, I was just well became a fan of and a student of understanding as much as I could about this new space. Was following all of the companies that were growing in the space. For example, I followed very closely as search engines were being developed, like Alta Vista, uh, Yahoo was a link at a time organizing the entire web. And I spent a lot of time with a, a college friend of mine, Adam Weissman, pondering how might we better organize the information in the world. And, and that, that's what ultimately led to starting a company. Got it. Got it. So, so was there like, for example, like between you and, and Adam, so what did each one of you kind of like bring to the table from a skill set perspective? That's yeah, a good question. So he was he was at a game company working on the AI between uh, the AI behind games where the the, the machine is rep, is representing players, and so there was a lot of AI, a lot of technology in, in gaming, and I on the other hand always had this deep fascination with data, and we believed that by bringing our interests and skills in AI and and in data that we would be able to, to take over the world, uh, a, ste a stepping stone at a time. Also, my brother joined as a founding team member. Uh, he was an engineer by training, but, but uh, a salesman at heart. And so uh, obviously that was a, an incredibly important skill set. Uh, also, two other founding team members, um, my cousin, Ari Barkin, who was working at Network Solutions, and uh, a friend, Brad Stein, who was uh, in accounting? So we brought we brought together this 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 crew of five that had uh, this diverse skill set. That's great, and I'm sure that having brothers and and cousins involved that also involved having business conversations in Thanksgiving dinners. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Absolutely. That's great. So so we're talking about the um, the late '90s. So what were some of the challenges that you guys were experiencing during the early days of the business? Let's see. Well, in the early days of the business, we had this big idea that a lot of the reason that there were knowledge gaps was because of the lack of precision in language. Uh, you can have a single word that means many things. Um, you could have Jaguar the animal, or it's a car, or it, there were other products called Jaguar. Uh, 
also oftentimes a keyword match wouldn't find wouldn't get you exactly what you're looking for maybe you search on a keyword you want to you search on on travel but the document that you're looking for doesn't actually use that word travel it, it uses other words that refer maybe it's flying maybe it's destination maybe it's hotel or airlines uh, we wanted to solve text-based searching and turn it into a meaning-based search. Our challenge, what was our challenge? Well, frankly, it was Google. They were uh, dominating in search and we were, we, we were trying to get a piece of the market share in, in search and, uh, and we were starting to lose. And uh, we felt proud about what we had built, but the, the results weren't coming in. And, uh, and so we were going to have to pivot. Got it. Got it. So then what ended up being the, the business model? How were you guys making money? Well, we realized that meaning-based search, we had built a lot of this AI. At the time, we, we referred to it as our natural language understanding technology that could parse and read text and assign meaning to it in a very human way. Uh, we knew that it had implications to search and could help search be more precise and more comprehensive at the same time but we weren't winning at the search game. We realized that it also had other, other use cases. Uh, one of those was in advertising. And Applied, Semant uh, Applied Semantics became a pioneer in contextual advertising. We built a product called AdSense that would choose the most relevant advertising to align within, within a web page, within a body of content. Uh, and we saw these really miraculous click-throughs because even though it flew in the face of how traditional advertising was done, uh, it turned out that, you know, it, it, today it doesn't seem so profound, but at the time uh, it was somewhat uh, against the, the, the prior view on things. That, uh, but it, it, it wouldn't surprise one to believe that uh, people click on these ads if they are right in line with what you're reading. Got it. And AdSense, I mean, you, you were mentioning AdSense. I mean, that's that's unbelievably um, impressive. Um, I mean, I can't even imagine how many how many lives you've touched with uh, with that. No, so so I wanted to ask you here. Um, obviously, you guys are growing. The team is growing. Uh, so, how did you really capitalize the business? What was the structure there? It was it was tough. First first of all, it was it was, it was not easy because it's in Los Angeles in. 1999 and 2000, there weren't very many angels, if any. If there were any, I didn't know any of them. It was not a network like today where you have incubators and accelerators and you can find advisors, uh, have a, a long history in introducing you to angels. Uh, it was a very immature environment in that regard. There were, there were a few venture capitalists, but they often wanted uh, more at, a, at the Series A level they often wanted more of a track record. So it was, it was tough, and we, we had to, um, I was going to say beg, borrow, and steal, but we definitely didn't steal. Uh, but there was a little bit of begging and borrowing. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I had an, an offer from, from one relative to invest $300,000, but he wanted me to sign this document that said that if the company didn't succeed, I would be a, I would work for him for the, for the next 10 years at, at his company. Um, obviously, those were kind of onerous terms. Did you sign that? 
I ended up not. I was thinking okay. about it because, you know, you, you want money to fund a company. You, um, you do it. Sometimes you, you do things that you, you maybe shouldn't do. I did invest all the, my, my savings from Silicon Valley uh, over six or seven years. So that, 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 that ended up being the capital we used for the first nine months. And then we managed, we managed to find um, investors. My, my brother was a, was a technical salesperson. He, had, he was out and about, and uh, he, made, uh, he, he made some connections that proved very valuable in getting some of the seed capital. So how, how much capital did you guys um, raise for the life of the business? Mm -hmm. we, raised, uh, I, we raised under a million for, for the seed. And then we ended up doing a Series A uh, in the summer of 2000, which turned out in retrospect to be very lucky that we got it done because months later, the entire, well, the NASDAQ stock market crashed. Um, you, entered, you entered this long winter uh, for, for a couple of years where, where VCs were, where, were very paused in terms of investing in new companies. So we, we ended up getting a Series A done, $5.2 million dollars we, we raised yeah. um, from, uh, from, from a, a, couple, a couple early stage Series A investors. And, uh, and that, but that turned out to be enough. We, were, we, we, were very, we had to be very frugal and careful with that money. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have lasted the long winter. We, we, we ran the business knowing that there probably wasn't going to be another round. And we, so we ran it to become profitable. That's interesting. I mean, obviously, the, um, the 5 million A round that you did back then, you know, probably would have been like 10 to 15 or even more today. It's, it's really incredible how things have, have um, I would say, evolved on the financing cycles. Uh, but, but one thing that I wanted to ask you here is uh, being, being part of that, of that um, I would say, uh, part of history, you know, where, where the market was really turning around on on all the people that were in tech and especially doing hyper growth companies, I'm sure that, and you were talking about like being a little bit frugal with the, with the, with the capital that you guys had raised. So what did you learn from being in such a, a long winter in an environment that if we were to go with another, let's say market correction, you would absolutely keep very closely in mind. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're, you're right. in in, referring to the, the idea that you do have to be, as a company, you have to accept the fact that there might be a period of time that springs on you where funding freezes. And so you always have to have that plan B in mind. What happens if you can't raise any more capital? On one hand, there's an incredible pressure to, to grow the top line, to spend aggressively, uh, to build new products and hire new salespeople to grow revenue lines. Uh, on the other hand, um, it, is, it, is always, it may be the case that the money that you have in the bank is the last money you're going to see. So I, th I think, I think the, the lesson is you have to constantly have your plan B and con continue, being, continue updating it and making sure that the plan B might not be a happy, healthy one, uh, but, but without one, uh, you, might, you might not make it to, uh, to the next chapter. Yeah, for us, for us, we did we did have to do a layoff. I mean, it, it was one of the worst weeks that I had experienced at the time. Laying off seven people out of, let's say, probably it was about forty-five. Um, it felt devastating to me. Um, we did we did have to 
cut corners in order to make, make it ultimately to, uh, to 2003 when things started turning around. And talking about that a little bit, uh, Joe, because people, you know, don't, people always talk about like how beautiful everything is. And, you know, I'm glad that, that you're touching on this. Who, who, as a leader, who did you have to be in that moment of, of doing the layoffs in order to be effective? Who did I have to be as a leader? Um, like who, who did you, who were you being like, because obviously it's terrible uh, as a, as an experience to, to have to go through that as a, as a founder and, and the leader of the business, but also the, the, the show, you know, needs to go on. So, so how did you really execute so that you were able to minimize as well the impact on the culture, but then be able to, to continue pushing forward? No? How did you handle that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, Later, I stumbled on this lecture, this last lecture of Randy Posh that I think was uh, incredibly touching and meaningful to me about how she teaches stories of, of grit and how any successful company is going to have to uh, encounter and deal with really painful and difficult obstacles. And, and if you don't run across those obstacles, then there's almost something wrong with your journey. Um, if you don't encounter those obstacles, probably you're working on something that's that you're probably not pushing hard enough, or you're working on something that uh, that isn't going to distinguish yourself from the field. Yeah. So I I feel that that one of the key experiences uh, is is just simply dealing dealing with difficulty and pain and taking a few deep breaths and waking up in the morning and trying to disconnect a little bit of the emotion for, for a moment and writing down, I, I, I always like, like to write myself, but writing down scenario options and writing down as much as I could about pros and cons and trying to get comfortable with the fact that even though a, a particular choice feels and seems painful, it's, it's the right one for the company and for the highest percentage of people as possible. And then just moving forward, taking a step at a time. And, and, uh, and that's what execution, that's what execution is about is just moving, moving forward. Um, I mean, as far as the people that were negatively affected, I think they understood in, in, I let my emotions show and they understood that, um, that I wasn't happy, but it was the best thing that I could do for the company. And I, th I think if you're just transparent like that, that, that things can still work. A hundred percent. I fully agree with, there with you, uh, Jill. And, and, and for you, how was the, um, the transition from, because here, here you are, you know, a trained engineer going full speed ahead as a business leader. So how was the transition from the engineering side to the business side for you? It was tough. I, I don't think, I don't think I was prepared for a leadership role uh, at Applied Semantics. Um, if you've read or paged through Ben Horowitz's book about called The Hard Thing About Hard Things, he describes how really none of these, none of the, these founding CEOs are prepared for being a CEO. There's not really uh, a, a, a tool or a class to prepare. You're just thrown into it and every experience is a little different. Um, so I don't think I was prepared, but one experience at a time, you build up, you build up a, a book of experiences and you build some wisdom and, um, 
it was, uh, again, it was, it was difficult. So here's an example. Somehow I got all the way through high school and college, never having made a preparation, never having made a presentation uh, in front of a group of people. I'm not really quite sure why or how, how I got through education like that. <laughs> right. Um, but I remember the first times having to present at clients, um, wow. not having taken, uh, not having any training or experience. And um, I mean, I, and on, on at least one occasion, I had a, a panic attack and, you know, forgot where I was and just stopped speaking. Um, yeah. But, you know, through every experience, you just, um, you learn a new technique, uh, whether it's a breathing technique or you, you gain more confidence. Um, you, you see another day and you're a little bit better. And, and, and over time, what you get, what you get addicted to is improvement. And so little by little, you, you go from uh, having no skill in something to if you're really committed to it, um, you can, you can gain quite a bit of skill in any, almost any endeavor that you, you set forth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, Jill, uh, let's talk about let's shift the gears a little bit here, and and let's talk about the the M and A. So, so how was that process for you guys? Why did you decide that? Obviously, I mean, the company ended up being acquired by Google, but but kind of like make us be insiders for a minute here on on that M and A process. So the M and A process with Google and applied semantics you're asking about. Yeah. So, so why? I mean, did you guys make a decision to? To go uh, to go ahead and, and do an M and A process and and so forth, or was it Google coming to you guys, or or how this did happen? Yeah, my my focus has always been well, in building companies. My goal has always been uh, optionality, and so not having an absolute goal around an exit. So in apply, at Applied Semantics in two thousand three, we did not have a goal to be acquired. Our goals were to build good technology and to serve our customers and to grow. So we were not, we did not begin any sort of M and A process. What happened in 2003 was we were seeing a lot of growth in our AdSense business. We were working closely with Overture on this product, uh, working co-marketing with them, AdSense, and selling into publishers, um, tying it to their large ad network. Overture, as you probably recall, uh, ended up becoming uh, Yahoo's uh, advertising network when that they got acquired. Uh, in, also in 2003. And uh, Google also was getting very, very interested in this area, and we were having discussions with Google. At the time, what we were hearing was that Google and Overture, these two powerful companies, Overture that became Yahoo, these powerful companies were both telling us that they were going to uh, invest heavily in contextual advertising, and they told us, well, you better, you better sell or else we're going to be competing with you shortly. Um, we decided that we, we were going, it was the right opportunity to strategically align with one of these two companies. And Google made us uh, an offer that we couldn't refuse, a very good offer. Um, I was also a little bit less experienced. So I think I was a little terrified, frankly, that if yeah. we didn't, if we that competing against what would become Yahoo and also Google at the same time would, would be, um, too much of a challenge to surmount. In retrospect, I think, I think it wasn't the the game-ending uh, moment. We could we could have managed. We saw other companies after us grow even larger in the space. But I certainly don't regret anything. I think we, Google made us a 
the right offer and employees and investors uh, felt like uh, this was this was the right exit and it enabled us to have this fantastic experience with Google to grow the AdSense business. I was there for four years. Today, it's something like a fifteen or twenty billion dollar a year revenue wedge for 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 uh, for Google. That's amazing. And and how big was the um, how big were you guys right 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 like prior to the transaction closing? Uh, we were um, let's see, we were forty five people. We were profitable. I don't recall the exact revenues, but we, we were profitable and we were growing very quickly. Got it. And and what were the terms of the transaction, Jill? Oh, it was a, it was a cash and stock deal. So um, so we were able to pay back our investors and pay back a return, and there was upside with the stock. So so uh, that that was a positive outcome. Got it. Yeah, I, I believe I read that it was uh, reportedly somewhere around a hundred and something million, but uh, a little bit over a hundred million. But anyhow, in Google, you were for four years. So how was this shift for you where you go from building your own baby and, and not reporting to, you know, maybe like to your investors and the board, but, but here you have, you know, you're working for someone else. So how, how was this for you? It, it was an incredible opportunity to, to be at Google, to be running the, the, as an engineering director to run the Santa Monica office. Now, then it got renamed Google Venice and now it's Google Los Angeles. This opportunity to be an, uh, an engineering leader was fantastic. Uh, getting to learn from, from engineering leaders and, and an organization that had this true data and engineering DNA uh, who had the experience to build up a culture to incredible scale uh, it was a fantastic experience, and so I really uh, enjoyed that and, and learned a lot over uh, three and a half years. Because how many how many employees? How, how big was Google at the time where where you guys did this deal? Google was a thousand people at the time, probably probably three or four hundred and three or four hundred in engineering. I would I would guess. Wow, compared to probably the hundred hundreds of thousands of employees that they have today. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So. That was 2003. I stayed there till 2007, and I think they they grew approximately 10x the employee base around 10x in that time. And then, as you mentioned, they've grown approximately another 10x on top of that uh, since since I left in 2007. Wow, that's amazing. So, so what what made you um you know kind of like uh, switch gears and say, hey, Google is fun. This is a rocket ship, but it's time to go at it again. Yes, as I mentioned, getting to see in action a, a, a culture of incredible um, engineering talent and culture of innovation and wanting to challenge whatever status quo is in the world and try to do things better, um, oftentimes using data, using automation and software, uh, increasingly using machine learning and AI. It was, uh, it was amazing, but it also shaped refined and sh continued to shape my worldview that the data the data moat is an incredible advantage that google has and that and it's because data is a fundamental building block for almost any important discovery or innovation i became a little bit concerned that google could become a monopoly of innovation i I felt like 
a, a, a world where many companies are bringing innovation forth across the world, I felt like that ultimately is, is, is the world that I want to live in. And so I started to think about creating a company, a neutral data company, a company that wants to democratize access to information, to provide data to other companies so that they can work on, on innovation, on building innovative new products and services. I thought it was an important role to play. And I and and that's what that's what we ended up doing. I left in 2007 and and began begun building Factual in 2008. Got it. So what what was the um the early uh, I would say founding team or or members of the of the team? Uh, in their early days, um, I uh, two founding engineers uh, joined me. One one researcher, uh, PhD in, that had experience in natural language technologies and AI, um, Tim Chaklovsky, and a uh, an experienced engineering lead from Idea Lab uh, named Myron On. Uh, so the three of us be- began working on ambitious ideas that we were writing down on paper in 2007, and then we began building the company in earnest um, in 2008. Got it. Got it. Really, really, really cool. And and basically, what what ended up being the um, the business model for for Factual? Much like applied semantics, I had this. Now, granted, it was only one data point, but my one data point at applied semantics that I a lesson that I took from that is you can over-optimize a business by focusing too much on a specific solution. If you want to do something really disruptive and ambitious, focusing on a technology first, a technology that you think is going to be widely widely applicable, um, and then building something differentiated first, and then focusing on business model and use case second. That worked for me the first time. Again, it applied semantics. We didn't, we didn't even, we had no idea that we were going to build a technology for ads at the time. We were just building a, a technology for, for organizing information. So similarly at Factual, we, I, we put down some founding notions of what we want to do. Uh, it was a little bit similar to Applied Semantics in that we wanted to build foundational technologies for um, aggregating, cleaning, and structuring data so that we could build Databases at scale, and we so that we would have and and control um, um, unique databases that were of higher quality um, and would be would be in demand. We didn't yeah. know on, on founding in 2008, the App Store had just been launched. We were working on it even before the App Store had been launched. So this whole concept of this mobile ecosystem was brand new, but we had a feeling that location was going to be very important. In this new mobile ecosystem, that was that was a good that was a good bet. We started working on on location data very early, and that ended up being the uh, the premier focus of, of Factual, wanting to understand everything about every point on the globe and putting it into databases. Got it. And and as you were mentioning, I mean, we're talking about 2008, so this is a uh, before all the hype of um, data being the new uh, oil or the craziness around AI and, and machine learning and and things like that. So so I guess for you, kind of like being early in in in, in all of this data um, momentum um, space, I would say, 
what would you say that were some of the challenges that that you were experiencing? Yeah, so you're right. It was before all of the hype. Uh, terms like big data and data scientists hadn't even been coined yet. And so these weren't words that people knew or understood or used. It was a few years before uh, data became mainstream as uh, an, an area that companies should invest in. Yes, they were investing in IT, information technology, but they were thinking about it in a very, in a, in a traditional, more pra pragmatic way around how do we make sure that everybody has email and can access our corporate apps. They weren't thinking about it broadly in terms of how do we collect as much information about our customers and the world as possible so that we will be in the single best position to serve our, serve our own customers. I think, so I think because of that, the main challenge in terms of building a business model is that uh, many companies weren't that interested in investing in licensing and getting access to our data. We were in a sense in a limbo period waiting for a customer to be born. Um, late, later, you'd have companies that are, that you'd have location-based services companies that would later become our customer like Uber and Snapchat. Um, Facebook was around but hadn't been focused on mobile. Um, these, these companies would later become our customers, but we would have to wait for them to be invented and founded. Got it. And, and, and one thing that, that was just coming to mind is for something of this nature, obviously, the, um, to support growth, you, you need capital. Now, in your case, you, you had the, the financial muscle from the previous transaction that you had done with Applied Semantics uh, doing the acquisition to Google. So why did you decide uh, well, well, two questions here. At what point do you decide the, or, or you see that the business is going to require capital? And why did you decide to raise that capital from outsiders rather than doing something internal? Yes, I, I think there's, there's a, a lot of value in raising money from venture capitalists, especially top tier venture capitalists beyond the capital itself. So having, we, we raised a very large Series A. Uh, it was 25 million um, back in 2010. So besides, obviously, the capital is important if you're going to try to attract top talent. But it also, it also, in the case of Andreessen Horowitz and Index Ventures, uh, they they were able to offer um, guidance, um, a large network. Um, Andreessen has uh, teams that help. They they were among the first that were revolutionizing the idea of having teams that were that were available to help with marketing, with recruiting, with business development. Um, so there's a lot of support there. It also it also to the employees. Employees are happy to say that that this isn't just a a founder's game or or you know love. It's 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 a business. In order to attract top employees, you have to show that you are very focused on, on building, building a real business that's going to ultimately be a great growth opportunity for, uh, for this top talent. Yeah, I mean, just like you say, I think that the, um, the resources that these uh, VCs bring or these investors bring is, is fantastic. But just like you're pointing to the signals that you send to the market and the social proof is, is great. And, you know, I was just taking a look at the cap table that you guys have. I mean, Index Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, Felicis Ventures, Founder Collective, Data Collective, Upfront Ventures. I mean, it's like the the who is who basically of 
of, uh, of, of startup investing. So how did you meet these guys, Jill? I was definitely proud of the, 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 the group, group of investors that, that, uh, that I was able to assemble back, back then in, in 2010. Um, I mean, I, uh, I don't. I don't know if there's a, a pattern, a, a pattern to draw upon in terms of how how I met these these people, <clears throat> but um, I certainly got out there. I was investing. Um, I, I I loved I loved angel investing, so uh, I I had the opportunity to to pay it forward a little bit. Um, but it was also a fantastic financial opportunity to invest in other investor in in other founders. Maybe through some of those founders, I got to, to meet um, some of these investors. Um, I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that process. Got it, got it. I mean, that's a definitely um, a good way, you know, boards and and stuff like that. So, so how big is uh, is Factual now? Factual is about two hundred employees. Our headquarters are are still here in LA, but we've we've opened up offices and have significant headcount and. In New York, we also have people in Chicago, London, Singapore, um, San Francisco, and uh, we're uh, yeah we've been we've been growing, growing around fifty percent over the last five six years. So it's turned into a quite quite a sizable operation. And why the different offices? Is it because of the skill sets that you're looking for that perhaps you're not able to find them in LA or or, or why? Oh, the, the 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 remote offices is uh, sales offices, so that's pretty typical configuration. We've decided to centralize product development and engineering uh, here in in Los Angeles, so almost all of the product managers and engineers and data scientists are here in LA. But but we need salespeople uh, on the ground uh, in in these remote regions in order to to grow our uh, marketing and sales put, footprint there. Got it. So, where, where do you see Jill the um, the data space heading? The data space. Well, I, I think it's still very early innings in terms of companies uh, investing in first party data, um, in understanding as much as possible about their own customers and about the rest of the world, so that they can optimize the their experiences, uh, optimizing the user experiences. Uh, companies want they want one-to-one relationships with their customers. They they want to um, make sure that they're not disintermediated. They they want they want to strategize and have very personalized one-to-one messages delivered. And you can only do that um, through the power of big data. So we see uh, we see this as a still a, a very much growing area. And specifically with location data, location data is a key element in, in terms of understanding your customers. Even if you're an online store, understanding when somebody's shopping, are, are, they, are they doing this at home? Um, are they also buying your product um, in physical locations? Uh, what, are their, what are their patterns? These, these things all, all figure. It's much more than just sending a, a, a geofenced coupon. Sometimes when people think about location uh, experiences they think about a geofence coupon when you're when you're near a Starbucks, they could give you an ad that says, "Hey, walk into our store and then we'll give you uh, this discount." Uh, we see it as so much more than that. Uh, we we see it as just fundamentally understanding the, the mindset of your customers. Really cool, really cool. And and you know, going back to what you were uh, saying before, so 
you did you did your your angel investing, but then you also created your own um, kind of like VC uh, structure or vehicle uh, to invest called Ten One Ten Ventures. So, can you tell us a little bit about about Ten One Ten Ventures? Oh, sure, sure. So it's a Ten One Ten is a an early stage stage a seed fund. We we have a deep focus on companies that are that are well with with our technical and operate well let me let me take a step back for a second uh 10110 was founded by David Waxman and I uh David Waxman has become a friend and colleague he he's a serial entrepreneur himself uh spent time at MIT so also very technical and a great operator we like to see ourselves as the technical operators a little bit geeky uh, you know, understanding the deep power of technology and data to disrupt uh, industries across the landscape. We started investing together um, maybe six years ago, but three years ago, we, we set up uh, a formal fund. We've had this great opportunity to build a brand as the fund that that uh, is in, can invest in uh, ambitious technical founders that um, have big ideas, big bold ideas. These tend to be in Los Angeles, although our mandate is broader than that. We can invest outside of LA. Uh, we we do love. I do love to see companies with data moats, companies where people are building up uh, unique proprietary data sets and using it to to reinvent uh, reinvent something. Um, a company that comes to mind is Second Spectrum, that is has become the dominant company in. Basketball and sports data—they're—they're gonna—they're gonna go beyond basketball, but they become known as the the basketball data company, and they're working closely uh, with partners to. Um, they got a big contract from the NBA. They're 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 looking to reinvent the entire consumer experience. Got it. So I mean, you you've seen quite a quite a bit of founders. Uh, you guys have been very active on the on the investing side. So so what kind of patterns have you seen? You know, on on, on these founders that. You saw them at a at a seat stage where they're like basically eating ramen out of a garage or or something like that, and and then they've gone out to to build meaningful stuff. I mean, what what are some of those patterns or uh, traits of, of of these founders that have potential? Right. Uh, so you're asking what what are the characteristics of a, a founder or founding team that to us makes for a, a great a great bet. For an, uh, an investment from ten one ten, correct. Um, I think it's natural to look at at many different um, dimensions. You want to uh, team team. You're right in pointing to that. A team is incredibly important. You want to. For us, we 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 look at some indications of passion and grit. Uh, we want teams that are working to solve a big problem and. Are not just looking to build a company and flip it and sell it. We we are looking for people that uh, deeply believe that they're put on earth to to solve this problem. Sometimes it takes a full ten years to to materialize a, a, a value to the world that you're bringing, uh, and and that element of grit is important because sometimes these stumbling blocks are really painful. We talked earlier about uh, a long winter and having to do layoffs. Some people, when the going gets tough, it's just they, they have other opportunities in life. They can they can close up shop and get a very high paying job somewhere else and, and have a wonderful life. And um, 
I don't necessarily hold that life choice against those people at all, but our job is, as investors is to predict which people are so wedded to the idea of success in terms of solving problem for customers that they're just not going to give up no matter what, um, maybe until their heart stops beating. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it, there's certainly cases where we've, uh, we've picked very well. Got it. Got it. That's really cool. So, so I always ask this question to, to guess, uh, Jill, if you could go back to the past and, and obviously you have an unbelievable amount of experience now. And, and, and if you could really go back to the past and give yourself just one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Let's see if I could give myself one piece of advice before launching my first Correct. business. Let's yeah. say if you, if you were able to talk with your younger self, what would you tell yourself? Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Let me, let me ponder it for, for a second. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, I think I, the first thing that comes to mind isn't answering your question, but, but I, sometimes I think I need my younger self to give me advice today and to, <laughs> and to remind, to remind me to go after big, big ideas. It's so easy in life to become more as you, as one gets older to become pragmatic yeah. and to do things, you know, are going to work. Um, it's, it's hard to remember that risk taking is and doing a few crazy things, um, putting some focusing on allowing for some moonshots, uh, is where the most exciting success comes from. And I, I, we, I try as hard as I can to, to remember that, but I think it wouldn't be bad from my younger self to occasionally shake that sense back into me. I think, uh, I think, I, I think to answer your question, I, I, th I think I've, I've learned over the last couple of decades to not panic when difficult situations happen. I think I was somewhat prepared for that journey, but not entirely prepared. Uh, and so uh, the first time around the roller coaster of incredibly depressing, sad, scary things happening along the journey um, probably took at least weeks, if not months off my life, just because you can have panic attacks around, oh my God, we're, uh, this new competitor has come out of nowhere and is better funded and has more PhDs. Um, I think, I mean, I learned at Applied Semantics that some of the most important ones, I think, are less tangible than, than what's on a resume. I think these, uh, these attributes like passion and grit can't be really measured. It's just, it's, it's really what's inside of you. And there's every opportunity for you as a small company facing David and Goliath situations to, to prevail. And you learn that over time. But uh, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been. It wouldn't. It would have helped. I think to uh, to hear that earlier. Got it. Got it. So, so Jill, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Well, um, you can follow me and send direct messages on, on Twitter. I'm, I'm Gil Elbaz on Twitter, and um, I I appreciate uh, any any interest. Amazing. Well, Gil, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.